Right. If you buy a car, uh, you kind of want to know as you buy the car that it's safe, don't you? Uh, and so you will probably do some kind of quality control. You'll do some testing because you're about to entrust your life to this kind of lump of metal. Likewise, if you walk around supermarkets these days, I don't do that as very often, but uh, as you do, uh, you see all these people kind of checking their labels, don't you? They're kind of checking, they're doing some testing, some quality control. What's going to be put into my body today? The amount of fat, the amount of sugar, all this kind of stuff. We do some kind of quality control, don't we? Well, in these final few verses of this letter, Paul is showing us that he is not content to let things slip. Superficial and immature are not to be found, if you like, on the label of the Church of Corinth. And God, through Paul, if you like, is doing some quality control here, some checking, some testing, if you like, on the church. These are the final checks. Are things okay? Just before he does his last full stop in the letter. As we've seen over many weeks, the church in Corinth have been mistakenly allowed, uh, they've allowed the culture of the city to become the kind of the dominating influence or the benchmark of kind of church life and ministry within the church as well. And secular success, Corinth was a very successful city, secular success and power had kind of become the expected norm for the church And as always is the case, when you ignore God's will for your life through his word, uh, whether that's as a church together or as an individual, very soon things go sour and sin creeps in. And in the church, that's what's happened. Uh, Success and power had replaced faithful gospel ministry. And what that had done is it led to little groups and factions to be created within the church And as a result of that, of course, anger and jealousy were rife. They moved themselves from the pattern and the life established by Jesus and modelled by Paul, uh, that cross-shaped life, to them, oh, that had just become way too costly. And Paul, throughout this letter, had been drawing the church back to, in a sense, to metaphorically sit themselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus And they needed to see that authentic ministry, the authentic Christian life, was not marked by worldly success. Letters of recommendation as these teachers have gone and said, look at my letters here. That's not what the Christian life and ministry is marked by. Nor is it by health and wealth and prosperity. Rather quite the opposite, as we see in the example of Paul. There is suffering and weakness. And there, trusting wholly in Christ, there we receive, as Paul has been at pains to kind of make clear throughout this letter, that is where paradoxically we know the strength of Christ flourishing in and through our weakness. Do you remember I said that the high point of the whole of this letter, the high point of Paul's argument has been leading the whole way to, and you get to chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, and it, sorry, 9 and 10, and he says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. See, the Corinthian church, they'd be saying, Oh, look at Paul, he's so weak, he's suffered so much, he can't possibly be a minister of the gospel. And you now he says, I, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that Christ's power might rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. 
all of which he'd experienced in, its dro- in their droves. Because he says, and this is it, this is the, the absolute climax of the book, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In Christ he's meaning there. 2 Corinthians is probably Paul's most heartfelt letter, really. It's a passionate defence of his ministry and the ministry of the church. And the first seven chapters read the ministry of the new covenant that's been established between God and his people in the church. Chapters 8 and 9, so the first seven chapters really are establishing the, the ministry of the new covenant. Chapters 8 and 9 really are then Paul writing to the group of people within the church who had listened to him, who had heard him as he visited and as he'd written, they're repentant people of the church who long to serve other churches with their gifts and money. So chapters 8 and 9 are written to the repentant people in the church. And then as we've been looking in this last few months, just at chapters 10 to 13, they're really written to the unrepentant people in the church. Those who are still saying to Paul, you're not the real deal. And there's a lot of division. There's a lot of heartache which he contends against. And so our verses today are really a last chance. You've got this unrepentant little minority within the church, led by these people who Paul calls super apostles, because they, they love to show how powerful and wonderful they are. And so these last four verses are the last chance for this unrepentant group to listen to Paul. Paul has been very stern. He's warned them to repent before he comes. We saw that last week, but now he finishes this letter and there's this quite amazing change of tone. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, in the original it's just brothers, but he's meaning both brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, now Paul hasn't used that language of brothers and sisters since before chapter 10. Now, what he's doing there is he's optimistically like looking at these, this unrepentant group and he's, he's saying, hey, I'm trusting that you are hearing me, that you are going to be repentant. I'm trusting that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. What follows in verse 11, however, is a, it's kind of a five, five single word summary of all of the books so far, particularly of chapters 10 uh, through to first th- uh, chapter 13. There are five single word imperatives in the original language. Look at them. Finally, brothers and sisters. First one, rejoice. Second one, strive for restora- full restoration. Third one, encourage one another. Fourth one, be of one mind. Fifth one, live in peace. Summarised at the end with that little statement which we'll come to. Let's go through those five instructions very quickly. And remember, they're just single pithy words. Imagine bullet points, if you like. And I've put them in their kind of the, the, the tense in which they find themselves in the original language on your sheets there. So they're closing instructions, verse 11. As I said, they're present tense imperatives. And what he's doing is he's shooting out them at, at, these, at these unrepentant people. He's saying, don't continue... As you are, rather continue like this. The unity and and therefore the future ministry and the existence of this church depends on them being these five things. And firstly says rejoice or be rejoicing because it's present and always will be kind of thing. Paul had long, uh, 
that the church had been a cause of his rejoicing throughout the letter. He longed to rejoice knowing that this detracting minority had repented. He's saying rejoice. That's the action of being joyful, of course. Which is, interestingly, the characteristic of the new covenant established by Jesus that goes throughout the whole of this letter. We rejoice in being saved by the death of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the coming of his spirit as the down payment, the guarantee of our future hope in Christ. We rejoice in all of this and more. This has been throughout the whole of the letter. But the interesting thing about rejoicing is we do so despite our struggles. We do so despite our suffering. See, rejoicing isn't isn't just a simple emotion of happiness that can fluctuate in a moment. Have you ever been with a child and... Children are annoying, aren't they, quite a lot of the time. But, you know, sometimes they, you know, they go, oh, I want, my, I want this, I want this, I want this. You know, they're shouting and they're bawling and saying, oh, if I don't get this, my life is so terrible. I don't know, okay, you're the worst parents ever. You know, so there's all this kind of thing. And then you give them an ice cream. And suddenly they're like smiling, going, oh, you're the best parent ever. That's great. You're happy. And they're happy. And they can go from sad to happy and sad to happy and back and forth very, very quickly. I wonder how quickly you can do that. Happy to sad, sad to happy. I wonder what flips you from one to the other. Maybe a difficult commute. Maybe someone at work. You know, maybe someone getting your coffee wrong. That's how irritable you can be in the morning, you know. You know, someone, you ask for that and they give you that, you know. But note the distinction. Happiness is circumstance dependent. Joy is circumstance defying. Our joy in Christ, you see, is not dependent on whether we get a latte in the morning or a cappuccino or, or whether work or life or relationships are getting us down. Our joy in Christ is deep-seated and it is not founded in our circumstances but in who we are, in our identity, in Christ. Being transformed by Christ. And that is the joy that's been littered throughout this letter. You can look at it later. Well, chapter 1 verse 24, chapter 2, 3, chapter 7 verse 4, chapter 7 verse 13. Write them down, look at them later. Joy is throughout. It is a blessing of the new covenant. Let me encourage you friends. Faithful Christians are joyful. The circumstances of our lives may be incredibly sad and there may be great sorrow every day. But as Paul says in chapter 6, verse 10, the Christian can can paradoxically be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Be rejoicing. The English is terrible, but rejoice, exclamation mark. Be restored, secondly, or as he puts it in our translation, strive for full restoration. Now, if you look back to verse 9 of this chapter, you see that Paul has already prayed for restoration uh, within the church as he admonishes them there. And what he's saying is, fulfill the prayer that I prayed for, the prayer that I prayed for you. And this single word that Paul is using here literally means to put something back into its kind of rightful place. And I think for Paul, that really is, 
it's kind of a twofold thing, really. Two ways he wants them to be restored. Restored to God and secondly to one another. Paul has already called them back in chapter 5, verse 20, to be reconciled to God. That is, to strive to be in good relationship with God. But also now, particularly the focus of chapter 10 onwards, has been with one another too. Unity in the church was a big problem. And they needed to be restored theologically in their unity, in their understanding of who God is and ministry there. Some had to be uh, also uh, called to be restored spiritually and practically as well because there was such immorality in the church and such division as well. Be rejoicing, be restored. Thirdly, be encouraged. Encourage one another. And 2 Corinthians, again, is littered. It is a letter of exhortation, of encouragement. And Paul has repeatedly encouraged the church. In chapter 2, verse 8, he encouraged them to reaffirm their love for an offender, as they're called in our translation. If you go back to 1 Corinthians there, someone had done something so immoral that they, would, they were essentially thrown out of the church in discipline, in loving discipline. And that offender in the beginning of chapter 2 in, in 2 Corinthians is then uh, brought back into the church because they're repentant. And they're saying, reaffirm your love for them. They need that right now. Alongside specific encouragements, there have been more general ones again and again. Though Paul isn't flattering them and then sort of like walking away. We love to do that in our society. He's persistently encouraging week by week by week. Which is exactly what we each need, isn't it? is why church is so important there's a good reason for this they just need to keep going in their faith quite urgently they need to act as we saw last week Paul is coming he's coming back and he doesn't want to come harshly in discipline he wants to come in gentleness and love they need to be encouraged but that not that must not be the end of it Likewise, when we come to church, when we go to home group, when we do our devotions in the morning, I hope, uh, all of those things, that encouragement is not an end of itself. We must never think that just being encouraged is enough. All of these instructions work together. Encouragement without restoration and unity is empty. So be rejoicing, be restored, be encouraged, be of one mind, fourthly. Every church needs this, don't we? Perhaps in Corinth more than most, as we kind of look through the letters, it's quite shocking at times. And it doesn't mean agree, setting aside your kind of individual opinions. It's still okay to support Chelsea um, or, you know, or whatever football team or rugby team you support. You know, uh, it's okay to be a, a Remainer or a Brexiteer. But on primary matters concerning the ministry of the gospel, there must be agreement and in Corinth you see there have been some really serious disagreements about what the Christian life looked like and what Christian ministry looked like and Paul has spent this whole letter showing them what to unite around in their thinking and in their living and in their giving particularly in chapters 8 and 9 he's saying be of one mind the big thing is be of one mind And lastly, be at peace. Live in peace. There's an obvious connection here with the previous one, isn't there? Peace comes from thinking the same way. 
And the letter actually, it, it writes in a, a kind of, with presuppositions. It's saying, it, it presupposes the whole time that there is division, there is struggling in their own hearts with God and with one another in the church. And as Christians, we will always find ourselves at war, won't we? A threefold war in a sense, in our own hearts against our own sinful nature, with the world around us and the schemes of the devil. That's our daily battle. That's the war we face. And Paul isn't overlooking that reality here. He's just saying there's one place where there should be peace. And that's here. In the church. This is our haven, if you like, of peace. The peace where we can have a foretaste of the the eternal peace we'll experience in heaven. So five instructions. Uh, And if they were ingredients of a delicious cake, uh, the cake of unity, shall we call it. Work with my illustration here. You don't have to work very hard. Uh, And the cherry on top is, if you like, this final sentence. Look at it. And the love of God and peace will be with you. God being with you by his spirit is the greatest blessing that any of us can possibly know. It's the sign and the joy of the new covenant established by Jesus. And you put all of these ingredients in a bowl, you mix them around a bit, and they see how they all work together. And you put them in the oven, you scoff it down your face, and what do you get? The God of love and peace will be with you. And it just doesn't get any better than that. But note that every single element takes work. The unity of this church and our church and any church depends on them and us being willing to rejoice, to strive, to encourage and so on. It's amazing, isn't it? Even rejoicing takes work. So five bullet points of instruction, followed by two closing greetings. Second point, much quicker, closing greetings. Verse 12, we've all wanted to get to this, haven't we? Let's, let's be honest. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, it is important to note what this is. Shall we say that right at the beginning? And what it is not. Paul is speaking here. Um, about a kiss that a family member would give to another family member having been separated for a time. This isn't erotic in any way. But do understand, in Greco-Roman culture, this was shocking. In any kind of mixed community, this kind of thing would not ever, ever, ever happen. You know, kind of Roman temple synagogues, this was never the norm. And so what is Paul doing here? He's suggesting to a church that has been divided to demonstrate their unity and to themselves, but also to the culture around them. There is something that should be wholly distinct and attractive about the unity and the love that Christians have for one another. And this holy kiss, which is seen, you can look at it at the end of 1 Corinthians, the end of Romans, and a number of other places as well. It's at the end of many of Paul's letters. It's just to symbolise a deep spiritual unity that Christian brothers and sisters enjoy. They're to do this. Why? Well, to the Colossians, for example, Paul says, put on love. 
greet each other with a holy kiss there as well. See, Paul says many times that acts of love build love. That is, love is also volitional as well as responsive, reactive. The act of love, you see, can revive a heart, a restore a relationship. Doing love enhances love. In our culture, you see, we're so often told that, you know, love is just the the natural reaction, the chemistry. It is that. That's absolutely fine. But it can also be a proactive word because love, because doing love enhances love. And whether it's a holy kiss or an appropriate hug, caring and loving action, we would do well to love each other as both an expression of our unity in Christ, but also to protect our unity in Christ. Paul now sends greetings. All God's people here send their greetings. Verse 13. Paul is trying to affect unity in verse 12 by encouraging them to demonstrate their unity in Christ to one another. And here in verse 13, he's just trying to show that this is normal. He sends greetings from others. Their unity is normal. All God's people send greetings. The universal early church, all the churches that Paul has established and he had contact with, would be praying for the church in Corinth. And they were united to the church in Corinth, so they send their greetings. Often natural history programmes, when a reporter travels to some tribe of people, they note the unity they experience as they sit down in some kind of tribal hut. You know, we have unity in our kind of humanity and it's, oh, that's great, isn't it? But if you've ever had the privilege of meeting Christians from other countries, there's a different level. There's a whole different level of unity to experience. I remember sitting in a church in Ukraine Um, I was a student, I went on a mission trip out there, and uh, singing with Christians in a church. You know, the church services last four hours, you preach, you sit down, preach again, okay, (laughs) preach again, and you preach again. As a young man, I just remember just being repeatedly hugged and kissed on the cheek. And it was so profoundly moving Men and women and children who had so little in comparison to me. Who lived in such a different culture, who spoke a different language. Yet we stood there. And though I could hardly sing a word, they sang with such gusto. So delighting in the glories of Christ. And they expressed our unity in him with just hugs and kisses. Closing instructions, closing greetings. Finally, this closing prayer, which many of us would have prayed a number of times. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's so familiar, isn't it? I wonder if we've ever really thought about it or examined it. It couldn't really be any more generous. What more could you pray for someone? Especially when you consider what Paul has gone through with this church. Uh, Now look at this kind of closing prayer because you see him. 
You see his heart and his love for God's people and God himself. And note how Trinitarian the prayer is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are mentioned. But look at the strange order. Did you note that? Son, Father, Spirit. Now the purpose is there within the order. And it's there to share the beauty of what God has done for the Corinthians and for us as well. Because it's, it's the sequence that we experience as we're saved by God. Paul begins, doesn't he? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is the undeserved kindness, isn't it? Uh, and that's, we know that from God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he was the gift that all of us need and none deserved. And Jesus, if you like, is our first encounter of God. Hence why he begins the sequence. We need grace to come into relationship with God and God showers us with the undeserved kindness day by day as we get a foretaste of grace we will know eternally in heaven. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, secondly, and the love of God. Of course, this is as a consequence of the grace of Christ, there comes a knowledge of God's love. The invisible and abstract becomes more real to us because we understand the love of God in and through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, in our place on a cross. So Romans 5 verse 8, for example, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, probably the best known verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, we know the love of God in and through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we receive the grace of Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God... And lastly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians, I don't know if you realise, it's, it's, apart from John's Gospel, I think one of the most populated letters in the New Testament regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. He's there as a sign and the seal of the new covenant established in and through the death of Jesus Christ. He's, you see, the Spirit gives us life eternal. The Spirit breathed life into creation as he breathes life into new creation. That is you and I, if you're Christians here today. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. I don't know if you realise this, but uh, if you're a Christian here today and you have the Spirit in your hearts, you have fellowship with heaven itself as the Spirit comes into your heart. We have fellowship with one another, yes, as we're united and secured in our heavenly home, but it's sealed by the Spirit. This isn't just grace. This is, as one of the great old hymns says, it is grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. I think the four words of the letter, the last four words, are perhaps the most shocking, though. Be with you all. Given how troublesome this church had been, you think how many prayerful and yet sleepless nights Paul would have had. How tempted he would have been to just those thoughts of vengeance, those thoughts of retribution, 
these guys are coming to his church and the church that he'd established, the church that he'd loved, the church that he visited, the church that he'd written to, the church that he sent people to in order to encourage, the church he'd done so much for, and yet these upstarts come in, claiming they have all the power and they have the great oratory and they look so splendid in comparison to Paul, a weak Paul. And yet he prays this for them all. The grace and the love and the fellowship of God will be with them Every single one of them. Paul concludes his letter with five summarising instructions. His aim, to affect unity in the church. The greetings would relationally unite them. And now this prayer to finish, it would be for them all. Uniting them in the saving work of God, Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. It is Paul's hope and prayer for Corinth. And what a prayer. And what a hope. May it be so for us too. Let me pray as we close. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, we're going to finish our... Our service really.